Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday 24th November as further promising news emerges of vaccine effectiveness, although still with no data published, and as plans emerge for the return home of university students and limited festive winter celebrations. Today on the line I have our three regular contributors, Nisri Nalwan. Say hi Nisreen. Nisreen Alwan, yeah, I'm an Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Southampton. And Helen Salisbury. Hi, I'm Helen, I'm a GP in Oxford. Matt Morgan. Hi, my name is Matt, I work as an Intensive Care Consultant in Cardiff. And our expert guest today is Charlotte Augst. Hi, I'm Chief Executive of National Voices, we're the leading coalition of health and care charities. Let me begin with you, Charlotte. National Voices has championed patient-centred care, as has the BMJ. And your report, available on your website, looks specifically at what matters to people for health and care during COVID-19, with some clear recommendations to health and care leaders and professionals. There was some good progress towards patient-centred care. How has this been impacted by the pandemic? If you peel it right back and you think the definition of uh, person-centered care or co-production is that people should have choices um, and that what they say is important should be considered, then in a way it's not entirely surprising that with the onset of the pandemic, a lot of choices were taken away because we all lost a lot of choices. So no one would choose to have their hip replacement cancelled, no one would choose to have their cataract cancelled, no one would choose not to have support from their community mental health team. These are all choices that were taken away from people and, you know, in a way, some of this was unavoidable. So I think the immediate effect is um, that people just sort of have to take what they get. You know, we're back to that state of affairs that this is the service, lump it or leave it. You know, there is no, there's very little, what's important to you? How can we share these decisions? Um, what, what should happen now is a recognition that the conditions for better shared decision-making and better co-production are in a way ideal because we are now in the kind of territory where we need to really explore with people what helps them cope with the circumstances that arise from this pandemic and what helps you cope is not an entirely medical question and therefore the doctor isn't always the expert in it and therefore this should actually level the playing field and it should bring much more of the sort of social and holistic insight to the decision making that the patient can bring and, and her carer and her family um, because we're not you know we can't afford all the medicine we would like we can't afford all the access to medicine we would like and therefore we're in a different kind of conversation given you can't have your cataract given you can't have your knee replaced what helps you cope given it's hard for you to access your mental health support right now what would help you live as well as possible um, for as long as possible and those are exactly the kind of questions where the patient is the expert um, and therefore, I think we have no excuse, really, not to really make a push on person-centred care, but I'm not seeing all that much of that. 
I, I guess that, um, well, we can ask Matt and, and Helen this, that, that the clinicians on the front line um, and also in Israel, the public health people have sort of had their focus on, you know, saving lives, suppressing the virus, setting up new systems, all of this. Um, and therefore, it, it might seem, you know, a bearable or, or justifiable reprioritization to, to, to start making many more kind of the old style patriarchal decisions rather than having time for uh, this kind of thing, but you would say, Charlotte, and I, and I hope we would all say, in an ideal world, that wouldn't have happened. And this, as it seems to be saying, this could have been almost a springboard for, for a different approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if you re remain firmly in the biomedical model of medicine, then the doctor is always the one who knows more. You know, if it's all about the biomarker and the latest drug development and all of that, then then it's hard for the patient to have a say. But we are kind of now organizing services in a way that acknowledges that we can't afford all the biomedicine that we would like. Um, people can't access these services at the moment. And um, we've heard that you know, very, very clearly. I think anyone who tries to kind of peddle the myth that the NHS always had capacity and the NHS uh, had spare capacity is, you know, if, if there was spare capacity, then I would like to know why people were suffering in the way they were suffering, because then it's really unjustifiable. Uh, people were suffering because there was no capacity in the NHS. That's the only conclusion we can draw. And in that situation where we can't stay firmly within the biomedical model, that is a leveling kind of situation. And therefore, I'd like to see much more of those kinds of conversations around what helps you cope what makes for a good life, what's a good day, all those sorts of questions. Helen, how does this appear from a GP's perspective up against it, um, even to deliver the, the, the sort of most fundamentals of care? It's really interesting, actually. To a certain extent, our conversations haven't changed very much because a year ago, I was having a lot of conversations with patients about why they had to wait and the fact that I didn't have any information about how long they would wait and how apologetic I was, um, that I just didn't have any information about when they were likely to be seen. Um, and this was our grossly underfunded NHS um, in perpetuity almost, it feels. No, no, it wasn't like this in 2008 and nine. but you know, for the last 10 years, it's been like this. And I have always been apologizing. If anything, it's been less difficult because people are more understanding that it's not just an underfunding issue this year. There's something else going on. Um, so people will be simultaneously really upset that they can't access care, but also very understanding because it's only their knee, which means they can't walk, um, but they're not dying. And they know that people in the hospital are dying. Um, and that other people have have more needs. So actually, to a certain extent, life has got easier from that point of view. But the thing that I was really struck by in, in your patient voices stuff was just the, the the difficulty that waiting without information is. And and I feel that at, at the GP end of it, just not knowing what is going to happen when, and the fact that patients have no idea and partly because there is uncertainty about what's going to happen next I mean none of us know how well a hospital will be coping in a month's time or whatever but it's also even that information isn't conveyed 
to I, either via me to me or to more importantly to the patient. Yeah, and we heard from people very clearly that they don't just know when and whether they will ever have their procedure or access to a specialist, but they don't even know whether they're still under the care of said specialist or whether they're back under the care of their GP or whether anyone is in charge of them. So what we heard very clearly is that people are feeling utterly abandoned um, and like they are no one's problem and their health concerns are no one's problem. And that is that is avoidable harm. You know, that is something that we could manage really quite easily because there's no reason a cancellation letter or a cancellation email couldn't contain those bits of information. And we are um, working with NHS England on, on improving the information standard around cancellation and delays because it's really, there's no excuse not to say, this is still the doctor in charge. They will reach out at this point again. It's hard for us to predict whether, you know, but we will reach out again in January and make further, you know, th those are things that one could very easily fix. Matt, how does this um, feel from the point of view of intensive care and hospital medicine of, of you know, how patients and their families are um, well, experiencing Well, I, I was this? told by somebody once that the important thing about communication is not what you say, it's about how you leave people feeling. And I think that's been a thread going through here. You know, even if there have been alternatives for these people, they feel unsupported. And so it, it's almost regardless of what was physically said or done, it's that feeling. And, you know, I just want to say thank you really for that report. And one line I've picked out from it particularly is this line, which is hard to say, which says, without blaming anyone, we must do things differently next time and then a patient voice from the report we would love everyone to remember how difficult splendid isolation is to live in and I think for lots of people you know some have thrived in isolation they've done keep fit they've done cookery for some this has been awful in terms of intensive care I guess we are shielded to some extent from issues around rationing and, and time skills because things have to happen in minutes or hours but what it has done is been the great unraveling of the fact that rationing and capacity has always been an issue like Helen has said we've got the lowest number of critical care beds anywhere in Europe actually um, Wales where I am was probably one of the lowest in the UK and that was a great unraveling to see that and to show what the implications of that can be um, so, you know, I just want to say thank you for the report, for speaking on behalf of those people. Um, and those two lines really stood out to me. That's really lovely to hear. I think we have had a more explicit debate about rationing and capacity than we maybe had for some years. I'm not convinced it's been a very mature one. And that's really regrettable because I think it got very unhelpfully mixed up with sort of end of life decisions and what's what's good end of life care and that it's not always throwing all the resources at someone in that moment and I think the mixing up of those two um, dynamics has damaged trust to a really horrifying extent so you know I speak to organizations that work with learning disabled people um, for example, and they, you know, they have, they have ongoing experiences of being deprioritized for their physical health care. 
and in the mix now in the COVID storm, I think it's become it's become toxic. And it's very hard to know how you come back from that without really addressing the credibility and trustworthiness of leadership and the things people say and believe to be true and the commitment they have for doing the best for people. And I, I just, I, that's one of the things I regret most deeply about the whole first wave is that we've come out of that without that belief strengthened. I, I was slightly at the sharp end of some of those debates. You know, I wrote a letter early in the pandemic, which was published in the BMJ, which introduced ideas such as we should think about what intensive care should do rather than what it can do. And that's no different mm. from the last decade. You know, We always put patients at the centre of those decisions, patient-centred care, shared decision-making. But saying that in such an explicit way around the time of discussions about, about rationing caused a huge spike in, um, how can I put it, less constructive feedback, shall we say. Whilst at the same time, the fiscal discussions about rationing through NICE, for example, which have been going on for a decade, feels like a very different conversation. And yet those two things kind of need to come together, actually. Nizreen, tell us how this um, pans out from your point of view um, in, in terms of you know what what has been you you know as a patient patient experience but also as a public health uh, expert watching this unfolding over the last few months uh, when when this pandemic started it was actually very striking how narrow um, the expertise field that shaped um, or, or, or maybe shaped the information going into the pandemic response so even not not patients or members of the public many of us um, you know, in science or in medicine felt that uh, we were left out of input, you know, in terms of our experience and what we know, including people in public health who should be kind of, you know, leading uh, such a response. I mean, I distinctly remember in March, uh, we had to qualify things. So if you want to say something, you have to say, well, I'm not an infectious disease modeler, but I do work in public health and I know these things. Uh, and I, you know, and we, so, so I think that narrow, um, field of we we know how this could be done i think obviously modeling is hugely important uh, very informative uh, but but also i think there was just so much more uh, this is this was a new virus but also a whole new circumstance that m most most of us the vast majority never been through in our lives and we needed that diversity in voices and we needed diversity expertise and perspectives and the patients and the doctors and you know everybody in and and society and, and, and I suppose if I can, that was a comment and I wanna to touch on and maybe ask a question as well, uh, Charlotte and to others. I mean, now we're hearing more of kind of this dichotomy. So we heard a lot about public health versus economy dichotomy. Now I'm seeing more and more of an another dichotomy of, uh, well, it's COVID, which one is more important? Is it COVID health or non-COVID health or is it COVID deaths or non-COVID deaths? And, and I see this as quite harmful because obviously not mutually ex exclusive, people who are on cancer waiting lists are worried about COVID as well. And that's part of the part of the problem. And I just wanted to hear your take and, and obviously kind of the patient, people who speak to the patient take on this. Yeah, I mean, it's a slight tension that we manage as an umbrella organization for health and care charities anyway, because there's a tendency, I think, among sort of single issue charities to say this is the most important thing, you know, kidney disease or Parkinson's or mental health is the most important thing. And I always try to sort of say, 
this single issue mindset is what drives so much insight and improvement and we mustn't sort of uh, belittle that it's important it those organizations particularly on the rarer conditions are often like the the most profound experts you know in understanding what people really need if they have you know rare genetic condition x or rare neurological condition y or whatever um and i think that's great so but where we stand as sort of national voices and as a, an umbrella organization is let's try to see the things we all have in common which is why for example we tend not to work on nice um treatment guidelines we don't tend to work on should this drug be made available or not because those are exactly the kind of crunch points that with that competition becomes most apparent because you can only spend your pound once you know you can either spend it on this drug or on that drug as you all know but what we all have in common as chronic largely chronic condition patients who are the most um substantial users of health and care services in the UK is that we need our carers to be better supported. We need better emotional support. We are interested in shared decision-making. We're interested to have a good care plan. We want to understand who's in charge. So who's coordinating the care. So these are all things we have in common. And I think I would have tried to apply that way of reasoning to the COVID crisis. Now, what's transpiring is a number of things, isn't it? The people who are dying of COVID often are kidney patients, Parkinson's patients, dementia patients, diabetes patients. So, you know, they have both and that's what's killing them. So it does not make sense from their perspective to divvy up what's more important. And what we're now also learning is that it can turn into a chronic condition or at least a long-term condition. We don't know whether people with long COVID will fully recover, you know, please, I mean, I really hope they do, um, but um, we don't know. And it's certainly a long-term condition for some people. And so, and, and it's different clusters of symptoms people then have, and they become neurology patients and they become respiratory patients and they become cardio patients. And therefore, you know, this is not, this is not a very helpful perspective again i think what we've seen is a lack of coherent values-based leadership has meant that we've become tribal in our response to what's going on it's the young people who are causing it it's only the old people who are dying it's the asian communities who are mixing in households it's the covid patients who are getting the preference and i think that is just terrible we will not get through the next year if that is the lens through which we look at the challenges. I was really interested in something you said just now about trust, Charlotte. And I think um, I think there's there's always been um, a few problems. Um, and I think, I mean, probably rightly so with certain um, uh, groups of patients and their families not completely trusting that their patient, their, their relative will be prioritised. And I suppose I'm thinking about um, the families of people with learning disability, for example, um, whose physical care maybe or clearly doesn't always get the attention that the families um, wish that it did. Um, and I think uh, similarly, patients, families of very elderly patients will sometimes think, I, you know, that, there's a, there's, a, there's a question, are you not doing X because my mum is so old? Um, and those things which were definitely there in the background, and I'm, I'm sure you will have heard them many times, um, 
before COVID have just been thrown in such stark relief and sometimes really said out loud that we shouldn't be doing these things. And there's this kind of really quite nasty strain that's saying, yeah, but we, we, we really should be not concentrating on COVID because it's only killing the elderly and people who are already ill. So, so really we should be thinking more and balancing it against the health of the economy. I mean, we know that you only have a good economy if you also have good health. So that's, that's nonsense, but it, it reveals quite a, a, a toxic attitude towards the most vulnerable in our society, which has, has really had a voice. I, I found that really upsetting in, in this pandemic. That, that things are said out loud, which people feared before. And now fear might actually in some way be part of policy, that, that you're going to deliberately say you're not going to give care to these people. I think people are really scared that they may be deprioritized. Yeah. I, um, when we convened people who had contributed their experiences to our online platform, Our COVID Voices, we convened people a couple of times during the summer to work up these new I statements for how services need to be now configured. We heard from some of those people like proper conspiracy theories about how this is like convenient for the government to basically bump them all off. And obviously, you know, national voices would never indulge in that kind of thinking or rhetoric, but it's very hard not to conclude that the needs and ambitions and aspirations of people who've got health and care needs have not always been prioritized. And I think that's become particularly apparent at the point at which the first lockdown was least sort of opened up a little bit. For me, there was a really marked difference in the tone of the contributions we then gathered on our platform. Initially, people described real hardship of situations that frankly, you know, some of them were unbearable to read about, you know, being in so much pain and not having support, being a carer and not having any relief, being normally supported by mental health teams and not having access to any of that terrible situations. But they weren't really blaming anyone. And I think with the loosening of the first lockdown, it became sort of apparent as to what was being prioritized um, I remember one of the first things that was being opened was car showrooms. And I read stories from people who had been shielding and they were totally in the dark about, you know, whether they would be allowed to see family members ever. And it just, it, it felt really incongruent. Um, and I think people responded to that with a lot more anger. Um, and that's, again, something that's going to make it quite hard for us, I think, to maneuver our way through the decisions we've got to make, because these decisions, you know, let's say around the vaccine and let's say around tiered restrictions and what are we going to prioritize by way of keeping it open or not, they require us to kind of agree on what the common good is. Um, and to be a prepared to subsume our own interest into that to some extent. And I do think people have that. People have that instinct that this situation requires us to deprioritize what we personally need right now. There's a huge amount of um, willingness, I think, to, to sacrifice some stuff, personal freedoms and so on. But it can only we can only maintain that if we 
make very explicit what values we're trying to realize and defend. And I think that's the thing that I feel we've not heard enough of. We've not heard from politicians, but we also maybe haven't heard enough from medical leadership or clinical leadership. What are the actual values we're trying to defend here? And they're values of inclusivity, clearly, and dignity and participation and um, what it means to be a human being. And the, I just feel occasionally I've seen people talk at the WHO about this. I don't know the Irish guy who leads the pandemic response at the WHO, I've forgotten his name. And when he speaks, I, I can I realize how much I've been longing for that kind of leadership, that someone actually says, we are not a herd of cows. We will not talk about herd immunity. We are human beings. And, and I, I just sort of sit back and I think, oh my God, I didn't even realize how much we needed this until I heard it, you know? So I think that that's my takeaway around this. Thank you so much for saying this, um, Helen and Charlotte, because this is so important to make, because I feel the pandemic has given a license to people, to some people, to speak openly about the value of others, to, to actually decide that, you know, value, you know, other humans, you know, have less value. Um, and I think that shouldn't, it's not okay for this to be part of the conversation. And I don't, and that's not just in terms of the, you know, the elderly uh, people with vulnerable conditions, but actually, you know, we've seen much more things like racism and sexism and saying this is, you know, okay. And, you know, and, and, and basically just giving, di assigning different values to humans. Um, so, so yes, and I, I do like, um, you know, the, what Mike Ryan's um, uh, <laughs> words about, yes, you know, we're not, we know we're not cows and, uh, you know, to talk about her because it, yeah, we're different. We're, we're humans. And, and if we're going to have to have, we, if we're going to have such very difficult conversations, we, you know, exactly, everybody has to be explicit about their values, exactly what you said, you know, the po politicians, the leaders, the scientists, um, everybody who has a role in this pandemic needs to be very explicit about where they're coming from and, 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 and their values. Really, I think this is part of what we call um, the declaration of interest. I think even people can't, even people, if it can go on and have long declaration of interest, I feel like who your values and your morals and who you are and where you're coming from need to be in there at this very difficult time. Yeah, thank, thank you for saying that in such a way that I couldn't really. I guess from the critical care and the acute side of things, we also have to overlap the importance of those patient values with, I guess, facts, data, uh, the economics of care rationing that we've talked about. And I think that's where I find it personally the most difficult is when those real personal things such as ethnicity, age, comorbidities overlap with hard data. So how do you apply the epidemiological models of you know, people who are at the extremes of age or comorbidities, intensive care is very unlikely to actually do any good for them. How do you overlap that data with also treating the person as a person uh, and not you know, as a number, as an epidemiological graph. For me, the, the way I phrase things are in terms of, I often say, we will use all the treatments that work, but what we won't do is we won't use the treatments that won't work because that won't help you. But trying to get those concepts across and disentangle things such as age and comorbidities is, is hard. And 
I think we've been trying to do it in acute care for generations and COVID has really shone the light onto it more than ever. So if you've got any advice about how to frame that conversation in a way which isn't discriminatory, although the metrics include those values which are discriminatory in some ways. That those conversations you're talking about, Matt, are are hard at the best of times, but I think they've been made harder by a loss of trust um, and because some of the, the rhetoric that's been around. Because if you can say the things that you just said, I won't use treatment that won't work and I am working in it, you know, for you, for what's best for you, um, usually that's fine. But actually, if people have been fed this insidious drip feed of we don't value you because you're old or we don't value you because um, you're learned disabled, then then it's much harder for them to be- believe you however well you do it. And I suppose that, that's the thing, that, that, that belief in the health service is something that will treat us all um, according to our best health needs um, rather than and treat us all as equally valid human beings. We need people to believe that, to be able to do the difficult job that you do. Um, And I worry that it's that trust that has been damaged in some way by this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the the kind of conversation you you are starting there, Matt, is sort of partly about this, you will all have noticed this ethical framework that was discussed at one point around... um, prioritizing or deprioritizing care and um, I don't really want to unpack all of that but I think um, something I've taken away from that is that kind of recognizing our shared humanity does not mean uh, trying to extend everybody's life at all cost because a part of the human condition clearly is that our bodies do fail in the end and our minds often and um, that there is a humanity in doing that well, you know, and supporting people well at that point at which their bodies and minds fail, um, which isn't about just extending by another week or by another three days or another three months. Um, I do think what what's required at that moment in one shape or another, and often it's obviously GPs or community nurses also, it's not all intensivists who, you know, in a way they, they deal with the kind of comatose patient. They don't always have those conversations. Um, it's, I think you can't do it through an algorithm. I think that's where we've gone wrong immediately with this sort of idea of a framework that a, a numerical value is attached to your age and your number of comorbidities and whatever, your BMI or whatever it is, and then out comes a number. And, you know, for the relatives, let's say, who need to understand that their, that their loved one might not be taken to hospital, might not have that ambulance right, might not be put on an incubate, on a um, breathing machine or whatever, is the answer can't be because the number was 25 that that's just not an answer people can live with i think and i think it is upon doctors at that point to inject their own humanity in that decision as hard as that is and as you know my heart goes out to anyone who has to do it and i'm so grateful i don't have to do it but that's what you've chosen as a career isn't it to put your own humanity in the place of these really hard decisions and 
to make that sort of transparent and to shoulder that and not to say it was 12 times seven and therefore the answer is you can't. You know, I just sort of think that's what people expect, isn't it? Is that someone injected their own judgment and humanity and values into this. And we need to be careful about that because those, those values might be racist or ageist or ableist, you know, and so it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but I think ideally, clearly, we want the benign doctor who says, all things considered, I think this is not what we want to do right now. Um, Matt, particularly for intensive care, I was really uh, worried about um, very quick rushed prediction models about who should get care um, and who shouldn't. Um, and and I think, you know, again, going coming from a background of, 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 of having done prediction models and, and, and knowing the limitations about them, I, I think, I don't envy you or even Helen, anybody who is make, who are, who, making these very difficult clinical decisions. But I do think um, there's been a tendency to try and take um, preliminary, uh, you know, evidence uh, because things are changing so fast and people want to know and, you know, there's hunger for knowledge. But actually the translation of that evidence into clinical decisions, um, I, I think people need to be careful about because you, you know what you know from before the pandemic of who benefits from certain treatments um, in ICU um, and then there's some new evidence generated all the time about additional layers of you know you know you know algorithms or, or modeling and I think with that very new things that you didn't know about from previous evidence and previous clinical practice and guidelines I think there needs to be more scrutiny into it um, you know it's definitely not a black and white picture and 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 and, and, I'm, and I have to say I'm glad that Things I did think, uh, you know, things haven't turned out as I expected them first because I thought there'll be these models and they're just coming and there'll be people being shut out from ICU and, and this hasn't happened and uh, and I think we just need to shine the light um, on the positivity of that, to be honest, um, in, in, you know, in the UK and maybe elsewhere, but that, that's been a positive thing and thanks to everybody, you know, including you, man, everybody who's involved in, um, in making these difficult decisions. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, there were a lot of draft models and they were you know, research-based models. They weren't used in practice, certainly in the UK. We didn't hit the point of rationing as they did in some places in Italy. And, you know, we've always had decision support tools, mm -hmm. but the import, most important word in that is support. Uh, you know, it's the contextualizing it for the individual because the statistics tells you if you put your head in the oven and your feet in the freezer, your middle will be just right. And, you know, in reality, that isn't how things work. Um, but you're right, there was a flurry of models to try to help if we came to a rationing point, none of which were ratified, verified or used. And that's the same actually across critical care or acute care or medicine per se be it for cardiac arrest care, be it for cancer care, be it for other things. They're decision support tools, but they should never replace uh, the humanity, as has been said beautifully before. I just really wanted to maybe be cheerful and celebrate the fact that although all these models have created, we didn't have to use them. And I think people are very conscious, obviously, that we've had a really rubbish six months, eight months, whatever, however long it's been. Um, but actually, we, ha we have escaped from those horror, we we've avoided those scenes that we saw in some other countries where people were dying because they could not get care that would have normally saved them. Um, and from, from this virus particularly, I mean, that 
clearly there may be some exceptions to that, but mostly we haven't had to say, you would survive if we had the facilities to put you on ITU, but we don't have them. So sorry, you go. We, we haven't had to make those decisions. Um, and that has been, I think, because although we did it too late and maybe imperfectly, the lockdowns actually did work. That there have been steps that have been effective in preventing the biggest catastrophe that there might have been. Um, and I guess we, we all try not to go there in our heads, the what might have been, what might have been the worst case scenario, but we did avoid that. And we did avoid having to make those explicit rationing decisions of which patient gets the only ventilator that's left. I'm really grateful that at least we avoided that. Can I ask uh, Charlotte uh, what, what, and, and all of all of you what 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 do we hope for then uh, moving into a more hopeful frame what what would you like to see Charlotte um doctors clinical leaders politicians what 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 would lead us to a better place in terms of patient centered care as this pandemic continues to unfold or even as we begin to see an end with the delivery of with the arrival of a vaccine yeah i think um we we have sort of learned we have learned a lot of things but one of the things we've learned is that maybe more than ever before what we all do outside of the health service impacts what goes on inside the health service so you know nowhere is that more explicit than in a infectious pandemic type situation but it's always been the case you know how we are as parents, as neighbours, as carers, as chronically ill people, how we behave, what we do impacts what goes on inside the NHS. And I think that is something to hold on to. Most healthcare happens outside of formal health services. And if we take that insight seriously, it means we need to improve that part of healthcare massively. So I think, for example, it's it's unbelievable that we still have not got a single leaflet or information output or anything about how do you look after someone with COVID at home? Hasn't been produced. I just think that's, how can that be the case? (laughs) Clearly there are situations where you can't, but many, many thousands and thousands of COVID patients coped at home, badly or not. And there was no information you know, that you couldn't even buy a decent thermometer. I didn't understand what's an extremely high temperature and what's a high temperature. I don't understand what breath assist looks like in a child. I don't know what it looks like in an old person. This is all stuff we need to know. And this is all stuff where we need to become partners in care. I think similarly with long COVID, you know, we are beavering away, spending good money. And that's right on long COVID services, totally right. And I'm glad we are. I've not seen a single thing that's addressing people with long COVID. You know, this is what we know right now. It's not a lot, but this is what we know right now. This is what some people with long COVID say is helpful. Why don't we produce something like that? I think there's something underneath that, another learning that we maybe needed to learn the hard way, and that's about the inverse care law. And, you know, hardy perennial of the health policy world has never gone away, but it's so obvious now, isn't it? The people who have the biggest health and care needs are the least likely to have them met through existing service models. And that's something we just need to crack on with, isn't it? And I include our sector in that, the patient charity sector in that, because I don't think we always automatically reach those people at the sharp end of the inverse care law either. 
And we, the recovery is going to be so unequal if we don't fix this. It looks like, I mean, it's always looked shocking when you look at who washes up in any and stratify that by income. And you look at who has planned care and you stratify that by income. And we have a taxpayer-funded health system. There's absolutely no reason why there should be any difference in utilization of services, but there's a massive difference. And it's, it's something we've got to get serious about because the other thing this pandemic has taught us is if this virus isn't under control in the sweatshops of Leicester, it's not under control. Then it's circulating in the community and then we will steer towards the next lockdown. So we can't afford not to tackle those situations in which this virus is seemingly out of control. And it's, I think those for me are the, the main learnings. We need to get serious about all the healthcare that happens outside of formal health services. And we need to get really serious about the inverse care law. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Nizreen, tell us your thoughts. Oh, thank you, Charlotte. I, I just wanted to say very quickly about long COVID because um, um, you know, I, I've uh, been part of the long COVID journey, both uh, uh, as a patient and, and, and as a kind of a public health expert. Um, I want to say two quick things. One is um, uh, the patient voice has been absolutely everything in shaping long COVID. You know, the patients are the experts. And I think at this moment of time, everybody should acknowledge that, you know, completely new condition. Nobody knows anything about it. Um, and the patient group as a group are, are the expert because there's been so much peer support and exchange of knowledge. But also I want to touch quickly on, on my role because I've learned so much. I had these two hats on. I've had the, you know, the public health epidemiology hat of, you know, counting long COVID and I've had the patient experience of experiencing it as well. And I found it striking um, that often uh, one of them gets discounted in me. You know, so I, 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 people, a lot of people get really uncomfortable with me having these two hats, you know, well, are you kind of the experts or you coming from a patient point of view? Well, I'm both, can you accept that I'm both? And, and maybe that's a discussion for another time. I found it really striking how, uh, you know, when I'm talking about say the science, the patient in me gets really discounted, um, you know, and, you know, as if it doesn't exist. Um, so um, just re really interesting. <laughs> Thanks, Nizreen. Helen? I was wanted to pick up on your point about the inverse care law um, and, and really this idea that actually how do we get on top of a pandemic mm -hmm. if we are not tackling how it spreads and it spreads um, when people are unable to um, keep themselves separate, to self-isolate um, when they have the illness. I don't know what research has been done into why people don't self-isolate. We know they don't, and we've got a pretty good guess at why they don't, because they don't live in a house that's big enough for them to self-isolate from other members of their family. They live in a multi-generational house. They can't afford not to go to work. Um, and we need to be thinking really hard about, you know, okay, if we want to interrupt the transmission of this virus, if we want to, to put a lid on it, how do we, how do, we do that? Um, how do we logically stop people going out and spreading that virus? And they're not doing it because they're selfish, mean and nasty and they don't care about anyone else. They're doing it because probably, I assume, 
because of the inescapable facts of their lives and their housing. And, and actually, you know, if you are, if you live in a big house and you can use a separate bathroom, which is what the advice is, then that's just great. But that's just not the real world for most people. And I feel we fail to actually engage with people about what behaviours are possible and then fail to make it, make it easier for them. And so therefore the pandemic continues to rage in places with overcrowded housing and poor incomes and this health and wealth divide just gets bigger and bigger. Um, and and, and I, I just feel we need to be doing more if we're gonna to get to on top of it. We can't just wait for a vaccine. I mean, I know we've got one coming, but there's going to be an awful lot of grief between now and when that is actually um, effective. Thanks, Helen. Mad. Yeah, it's the same here in the Welsh Valleys. You know, disease is a illness of the poor, sadly, and that's been the case uh, from chronic lung disease to COVID. Uh, for all the reasons Helen's outlined, behavioural change is only important if you can actually change. Um, and with lack of social support, lack of income support and other things, that's probably a huge driver for it. Um, I, I guess just one other thing to ask Charlotte, and I, I completely understand if, if she doesn't want to cover these things, it may be hard, but I read that sadly her husband David died uh, a year ago. And reading the report, I wonder how bereavement and support for people who have died, not necessarily from COVID, um, but from anything actually, uh, is managed in this pandemic as well. Uh, and you know, perhaps her own uh, ways that she's got mm-hmm. through this tough time, which would have been a year, uh, and mm-hmm. and perhaps uh, you know, lack of contact with with her own family mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, again, I, I completely understand if you don't want to go down this avenue, if it's it's tough. But I, I equally didn't want to not um, ask you either. Yeah, thank you. It's two years actually now that uh, they mm-hmm. died. Um, and honestly, I cannot imagine how this must be if you um, can't be around the people you love in these situations. And also just thinking about the last few weeks and months of David's life, the only thing that's left, certainly in our experience, the only thing that was left was that it was good for him to be near me. And and I don't know how you would, I don't know how you would support someone on that last journey without the intimacy of human touch. I honestly don't know. Cause that was really the only thing that was left. Um, it affected his brain in the end and there was nothing, you know, he was such a smart man, you know, uh, normally it would have all been about conversation, but it wasn't. Um, so, you know, zoom calls or anything like that would have not worked. So I don't know how people cope. And I think it's something that we need to urgently figure out. But for me, it's just one layer of trauma. And it's a really, it's a sharp end of trauma, the people who've been bereaved in these circumstances. But I think so many people have suffered trauma in these last few months. And um, a friend of mine has got a, a very severely disabled daughter. And she had this very careful patchwork of school provision and home provision and volunteers and it was all it kept them all afloat and when that all stopped from one day to the next she she kind of like sort of fell over a cliff 
And she described it as a form of trauma that she had worked so hard to assemble this package. And now it was all just, it could just all be taken away like this, you know, with one badly, badly worded email. So I think there's different experiences of trauma. And I think the Center for Mental Health have done some good work on this, that we need to get to a point in the next phase fast where healthcare becomes trauma informed in that way and where we make it our habit to check in with each other about where we're at and what we're coping with because ultimately all this trauma will probably present as health service use in the end won't it if it's not dealt with more appropriately and I also think there's a, again a role for national leaders when you look at the ones who have done well, whose approval ratings have gone up through this during this period. They were very careful to acknowledge, I think, the trauma that they're imposing on people through lockdowns and through job losses and and the rest of it. And and I think we all of that takes the pressure off every everyone acknowledging every acknowledgement of this must have been so difficult and how are you coping and well done for getting through this takes the pressure off. So I think we all, as people providing services, need to get in the habit of acknowledging the trauma. Charlotte, before we finish, just one last question from me. Most of the people listening will be healthcare providers in, in one form or other, doctors largely. What, what, um, what one or two things could they do uh, to 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 lead us to a better place in terms of patient-centred care uh, during the pandemic and afterwards? I think it's something about acknowledging, kind of maybe paradoxically, acknowledging how hard this has been on, on all of you, for all of you, and how one quite sort of obvious response to that might be that you just sort of harden up and... and um, make hard-nosed decisions in an even more kind of in an even less co-produced way because you're under so much pressure and you're coping with all this demand you can't meet um and i wonder whether there's something about being honest with the patient about that and being honest and saying i wish it was different and this has made my life really miserable over the last few months too but we can't meet all the demand so what we're going to do in the meantime and then listening to what comes back. Because when we spoke to people about their services being disrupted and, and canceled, none of them, no one we spoke to said, it's a scandal that my service has been canceled. If my services don't start again next week, like they used to be, it's another scandal. No one said that. So I think in being open about what's possible and what's not possible, you might actually have a more productive conversation about what will help in the meantime for people to cope with whatever ill health they're living with. Thank you so much, Charlotte. And thanks also to Nisreen Alwan, Helen Salisbury and Matt Morgan. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to our listeners. So do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be coming back weekly with these second wave podcasts. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.